Welcome to another episode of the Mystery Bible on Podcast. We are so honored and glad that you are here joining us again for another episode. Speaking of uh, episodes, this is episode number nine, and um, we're, we really appreciate how you all have been talking about us and sharing the spreading the word and posting things and bringing new people into the audience. When we last spoke, we had about a thousand all-time plays and now we're at about 1,700 all-time plays and a growing audience. And we, we don't say that to brag because the whole point of this podcast and our heart behind it is to be able to serve the church. You have myself and Dan and Brian here together, and we love the church, the body of Christ. Uh, we love being able to serve however we can and bring whatever we have to edify. And also, we're having a great time doing this. I, I'm really enjoying, you know, this this time with with Dan and Brian. And um, to, you know, we don't get to see each other a lot, but to hear voices and and to discuss meaningful conversations is a a great joy. So, thank you for being here. Um, for those of you who are regular listeners, and I know many of you are then if you're listening sequentially, you know the, the last episode where we discussed the threat by Dr. David Jacobs, got a, uh, people loved it, but it's heavy. And we didn't want to follow it with something that was uh, also really heavy. And so uh, we decided we would talk about hell for this podcast. And that's a little bit of a joke because this is a pretty lighthearted take on hell with, uh, with this book that we're going to discuss. And actually, we're probably going to be talking far more about heaven than hell. So I think this will be a lighter podcast, should be a kid-friendly podcast, and um, an episode that uh, hopefully uh, you know gets you thinking just as much, but probably doesn't give you any nightmares. So the book we're going to discuss is one of my all-time favorite books. This is the book, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Some of you may be familiar with it, and if you've read the book, then I highly encourage you to stay on and engage because I have probably read this book, the, you know, the setting the Bible aside into a different category. I have probably read this book more times than almost any other book that, uh, that I've enjoyed. And uh, I think the, the next closest one that I'm always thinking of is Summer of the Monkeys by Wilson Rawls. Love that book, but I, it's not fair because I started reading that as a kid. So I wasn't reading The Great Divorce as a little kid. I think I first stumbled on it um, in middle school and understood, you know, 70% of it, I thought. And then the more, as I read it more and more, I'm understanding more and more about this book. It's really a wonderful story, really, really helpful for thinking about the choices we make. And while it's set in heaven and hell, it's not really about heaven and hell. It's about us. It's about the decisions we make. So the thought process here, and by, by the way, I'll say real quickly, if you're not familiar with C.S. Lewis, he's a one of the great um, modern thinkers in Christian thought. He wrote Mere Christianity, which has shaped entire generations. He's a, a British theologian um, from kind of think about like the 1930s, 40s, 50s time frame. He was good friends with J.R.R. Tolkien. He wrote Lord of the Rings. They were all these authors and minds that sat together in the, the Eagle and the Lady pub in Oxford, England, which, which I've been to, by the way. It's a neat spot. Um, but they would sit there and discuss their their, uh, their books and their ideas. And if you don't know very much about C.S. Lewis, or you've read his stuff, but you don't know about his life, understanding his life is equally interesting. I would encourage you to um, go see the movie that I, I, I misnamed uh, recently, but it's called The Most Reluctant Convert. It's a 2021 film. 
and um, really, really good film about his own journey to Christianity. And and you understand a lot more why he writes the way he does. Also, if you've read uh, or if you've ever seen the film Shadowlands, that is another one about uh, not specifically his life, but his, uh, his his romance story, the story of his marriage, which is uh, which the, the result of which created some of his best writing. So C.S. Lewis, probably and we could go on and on about him. But what we want to talk about is the great divorce. And I've got Dan and Brian here with me. And I think what we want to do is we're going to talk each kind of give some thoughts on some things in the uh, the preface of the book, because a mark of a good book is when the preface is really insightful and uh, really gives you a good framework on how to think about it. And then we'll try to do a plot synopsis so you can follow along and see what it is that we're, you know, just so so when we drop you into a vignette, you have the broad strokes on what's going on and then wrap up with some uh, final thoughts. So I don't know if that's going to be uh, 40 minutes from now or 400 minutes from now. But uh, we're glad you're here with us, and we're uh, enjoying this conversation with you. So, Brian, uh, why don't you give some of your thoughts on the preface, and then we'll have Dan give his, and then we'll jump into a, a synopsis and a broad outline of the story. And I'll interrupt as I do, you know, wherever I think it makes sense. Right. <clears throat> okay. So, first thing I wanted to do is... I wanted to follow on with what Joel said, how he got introduced to C.S. Lewis. And for me, I didn't grow up in a Christian home or Christian environment. I never read the Chronicles of Narnia when I was growing up. Um, and I started reading the Chronological Bible every year. And I'd done that for many years. And then one year I decided, I'm just going to read everything that C.S. Lewis wrote. And it took me two years to get through it the first time. And so a lot of the books and a lot of the thoughts that he has written about, they kind of run together in my head sometimes. <laughs> so I have to, you know, refresh, oh, The Great Divorce has this stuff in it, not the stuff that's in Miracles or Problem of Pain or some of these other books. But it was hugely enriching to me in my in my understanding about my relationship with God. And I mean, I just recommend anybody, you can almost pick up anything that he wrote and you're going to get something out of it. Uh, so I just wanted to put that out there. So in this book, we get into the preface. I mean, from a, a, we're going to talk a little bit more about the overview and how the book flows. So I'm not going to get into that yet, but he typically will write a preface for his books where he talks about what his intention is, why he wrote it, and a lot of times what he is not doing with this book. What he, you know, he thinks he doesn't want us to get out of that book, for example. But in the very beginning of it, there is something that kind of helped shape my understanding of how, how our choices impact us and how our choices don't impact us. And he says in the very first paragraph of the preface, and his attempt of, of writing this book is based on the belief that reality never presents us with an absolutely unavoidable either or. And what he means by that is that usually there's nuances and there's ways you can take part of side A and part of side B and kind of not necessarily throw out everything of one side or throw out everything to another. And he says we can somehow turn evil into good 
without being called on for a final and total rejection of anything we should like to retain. And he believes that that is a disastrous error. You can't take all the luggage with you on your journeys. On one journey, even your right hand and your right eye may be among the things that you have to leave behind, which that hails back to what Christ told us. If your eye offend thee, pluck it out, right? Uh, if it's causing you to stumble and take you in directions that you don't want to go, then you should leave it behind. And he says, we are not living in a world where all roads are a radii of a circle and where all, if followed long enough, will therefore draw gradually nearer and finally meet at the center. Rather, in a world where every road after a few miles forks into two and each of those into two again, and at each fork you must make a decision. Even on the biological level, life is not like a river, but like a tree. It does not move toward unity, but away from it, and the creatures grow further apart as they increase in perfection. Good, as it ripens, becomes continually more different, not only from evil, but from other good. And there's a lot of ideas behind this. And I have mentioned Hinduism. The idea is, is that there's all of these thousands of gods, and you can follow all of them, but you're all going up different paths to the same mountaintop, and when you're all going to get there eventually. It's like that coexist bumper sticker that has all the religious iconog uh, iconography on it, the cross and, you know, yin and yang and different things on it. And a person who's displaying this is basically saying that, in their opinion, all religions are equal. They're not really that different from each other. There isn't any real reason for us to disagree about things, especially not when it comes to being violent or anything else. But that puts that person in this, what I would say is an arrogant position of saying they understand enough about all religion that it's all the same and we don't really need to, to fight about it, which isn't true. And anyone who is a devotee of any religion, whether that religion happens to be true or not, if they believe it, of course, they're not going to accept everyone else's beliefs as equal in value. That's just and silly. Brian, I, I, I like bumper stickers and I've actually tested this theory on, I think, two occasions that somebody who has that bumper sticker on their car doesn't belong to any of those religions or yes. doesn't practice any of them. You know, they usually That's they correct. loosely fall under, oh, I'm Buddhist or something like that. Very, But to, when you question, they don't really know anything about it. So exactly. That, that's an interesting trend with that bump. And I'm sure there are exceptions, but it's a, uh, I used to live in Boulder, Colorado for five years. And that sort of mindset that you're describing is, uh, is just endemic there. Yeah. And we, when you're trying to follow after truth, you know, the Bible tells us that you should, if you seek after God, you will find God, right? Knock and the door will be opened unto you. This kind of an idea that if you're following after absolute truth, true, true, God is going to help you along that way, and he's going to show you the way to go. And we have choices that we have to make. And so when you're making all these different choices, they should generally still go in the direction that you want them to go. You're not just letting the universe slap you around left and right, and you don't know where you're going to end up in terms of what you believe and what you think. So our choices, I think of it like a maze where you have a bunch of entrances. There is only one way out if 
you are going to truth. There's lots of other ways out if you want to go do your own thing. But C.S. Lewis was very much in the camp of our choices are significant. You do have free will. God's given that because it's part of the image of God that he has imprinted upon us. And things like love and fellowship and brotherness and all of those types of things don't don't really exist without true choice well, this because is you not, become an automaton. This is not a Calvinist book. <laughs> not C. at all. C.S. Lewis is not a Calvinist in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> and, and if if there's anything, if, very you could say, if this book is about something, it's about our choices and our will and how that affects uh, our compatibility with different outcomes in eternity. I mean, it, it, it really comes down to we choose Christ, which requires setting down everything else that we had previously chosen. Correct. Or if we won't set it down, then we're choosing hell. And yes. he has some really interesting stuff to say about, about that. Hell. Yeah. But but anyway, that that little part of the preface was kind of a co uh, coalescing of some of his ideas and in, uh, in other of his writings, <clears throat> and it really resonated with me in terms of our choices being significant. And that's why we pray and we ask God to help us to make good choices because we can often make really bad ones, but God lets us make those choices and he can still miraculously work those for his will and, and the things that he needs to have happen. So anyway, that's just from the preface. Um, and now I guess it's Dan's turn to continue on with that. <laughs> Yeah. So Dan, let's, let's, I know you have some thoughts from the preface there. And Brian, one thing I was thinking of just since I mentioned Christ before, Christ is, it, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think he's mentioned anywhere in this book. I don't think the name Jesus ever comes up, but he's the, what Christ did on the cross and who he is as God in heaven and what he offers us is everywhere in this book. It's a, it's a pretty interesting approach that uh, C.S. Lewis took there. Um, am I wrong on that? Do you remember Jesus being specifically mentioned anywhere in this book? I don't think he is. I do not. Yeah, that I sounds right. Yeah. So anyway, Dan, take it away. I know you have some thoughts on the preface and I've got, uh, I might uh, share that very last couple of lines there. I don't know if you were planning to, if you want to go to it, you can, but I know you've got some other thoughts as well. Yeah. Yeah. So actually the very next part of the preface, which the preface is not all that long, and, and it's full of stuff. Um, so right after the part that Brian's talking about, he gives a, basically an example from math about, um, about good be, being, or evil being redeemed into good, which we know Christ can do, right? Christ can uh, take, take things that are broken and bring beauty from ashes. Uh, but C.S. Lewis gives this example that a sum can be put right but only by going back till you find the error and working it afresh from that point, never by simply going on. Evil can be undone, but it cannot develop into good. Time does not heal it. The, smell, the spell must be unwound, bit by bit, with backward mutters of deserving power, or else not. It is not, it is still either or, if we insist on keeping hell, or even earth, we shall not see heaven. If we accept heaven, we shall not be able to retain even the smallest 
and most intimate souvenirs of hell. And so, you know, just a, a good, uh, pretty profound statement there in the preface about. Oh, that was the, a Dan profound. That's for you, Beth. <laughs> yeah, about just the, you know, there really is no compromise between living completely for Christ and or not. You know, there's not a middle ground, not a lukewarm option that we really have. Well, the, the word that comes to mind as you're describing this, Dan, and I'm really glad you pointed this out because this is what the book is about. There is zero compatibility between heaven and hell. And when we say hell, he just means things that are not of heaven, things that are there. there it's like there's Christ and there's Antichrist. And you can't take bits of Antichrist and say, this will be fine and I'll just sort of take it with me and, and Christ will turn it into, you know, he'll make it okay. Well, let me, let me, let me throw in one thing about that. One of the concepts that he elucidates in other books is in his definition, the true meaning of hell is the absolute absence of God. And all you have left is yourself. And if all you have is yourself with nothing else in the universe, that is the worst possible state you could be in. And so there cannot be, like he's saying, there can't be an overlap. There isn't a piece of luggage or a, a nice trinket that you liked when you were hellbound that you can just take with you. It, it well, will not survive. Yeah. So. You can't bring any shred of darkness into total light. The light, by definition, when it's total, as heaven is, you know, total Christ, then it absolutely eliminates all shreds of anything that is not Christ. And that's biblical language. You know, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. I don't remember what verse I'm quoting, but there, there that is a verse and um, or or something very close to one. So. You cannot say, I'm going to bring some of my darkness here because it makes me comfortable and it makes me happy. And so I'm going to have a little bit of it here and, um, and it should be fine. So Dan, anything else on the, uh, on the preface? And then we'll kind of yeah. move into what, what is this book about and what's the story it's telling? So the other big thing to keep in mind is that how, how he is describing hell is he is not trying to describe what he thinks hell actually looks like or heaven actually looks like. And he's very clear on this in the preface. So he says, uh, I, and I'll quote it here, I beg readers to remember that this is a fantasy. It has, of course, or I intended it to have, a moral. But the transmortal conditions are solely an imaginative supposal. They are not even a guess or a speculation at what may actually await us. The last thing I wish to arouse uh, the last thing I wish is to arouse factual curiosity about the details of the afterworld. So, you know, just keep that in mind as you read as you read this book, as you listen to this episode. It's we're we're not trying to describe even what he thinks hell is actually going to look like or heaven's actually going to look like. It's just it's a very interesting story that uh, I think one thing I often think with all C.S. Lewis books that I've read is just that he's very insightful and uh, brings things to light in a new way and helps you think about things in a new way and kind of expand and open your mind up to different ways of looking at things. And I think this book does an excellent job at doing just that. And if you are thinking specifically, 
about what might uh, be in the afterlife. And if you want some thoughts on that, and, and not not facts, but thoughts and thoughtful conversation on that, go back to episode two of this podcast. And that is where uh, Dan and I discussed a, a great book called Imagine Heaven by John Burke, I think. Um, and it's about near-death experiences and people who actually die, experience something on the other side, and then come back to life and have a story to tell. So that if, you, if you're if you looking for that, that is not what the great divorce that we're discussing tonight, that's not what it's about. Um, he uh, C.S. Lewis is in no way trying to say, hey, here's what to expect from heaven and hell. All of this is saying, if we take heaven, the concept of heaven, the concept of hell, put them into a box and put those boxes next to each other, what kind of, um, what can we learn from trying to create some model just on the base that, that the two are completely incompatible and what is a human being and what is a human soul and what is salvation in the human soul? What is will in that? And he calls this a fantasy. And there are two things when, when I think about fantasy and literary genres and C.S. Lewis very much writes in the fantasy genre, but he also writes in the science fiction genre. And those are two genres, and I was having this conversation with my uh, daughter recently, and she's a prolific reader and loves to talk about books and genres and why you like different ones. And she said, she was telling me she doesn't, she likes fantasy, but doesn't really like sci-fi, which is fine. And, but I like sci-fi quite a bit. And she said, why do you like it? I said, it gives you the freedom to ask, what if? And it always comes down, the, the good sci-fi, my favorite sci-fi and fantasy, but I like sci-fi even more tends to come down to the question, what is a human being? What is humanity? What is the human nature? What is human spirit? And you get the ability to do that when you're allowed to break all the rules, create a new paradigm and say, here, here's the set of facts in which humans have to operate now. And that's really what C.S. Lewis has done with this little fantasy book, The Great Divorce. He said, I'm going to take something that I'm going to call hell, which is defined as an absence of God. And I'm going to take something that is heaven, which is 100% God, and I'm going to put human beings and human nature in the middle of it. And the thing that we're going to test is free will. And if you've read the book, hopefully that that makes some some sense. But uh, it, and most of all, it helps us get an appreciation of the kind of choices we make and what we believe about the choices we make. So, Brian, what I want to do at this point, and Dan, thanks for hitting those points. I was going to read those same lines if you didn't, because I think it's really important disclaimer. Um, Brian, if you don't mind giving just a, a few minutes of, and I think we should, I think we'll both do this. You give a synopsis and then I'm going to just piggyback and give another synopsis, you know, in Joel speak and you can have Brian speak. And hopefully between those two, then people who haven't read the book We'll have some clue, and, and you don't have to give a synopsis of every event yet. But you, you, you know, we gotta we gotta yeah. create the structure here because it's it's a weird yep. setting that we're in. So yeah, go for it. So I'll I'll start off with the the beginning setting, and you have your main character who is in this dreary gray industrial cement looking town that you know looks like it was made haphazardly, but it's all very bad. It's all gray. It's all it's all sad, and there's all these people there in the city and he's having conversations with them. And then they start to hear about this place that you can go visit. That's a different place. And they get on a bus and they wind up going to the foothills of what turns out to be heaven. 
and there it's it's green and beautiful and there's mountains and grass but everyone that's on the bus as they get nearer and nearer they wind up becoming less and less the word we would use would be corporeal they are thinner and they they're essentially like ghosts and when they walk on the grass it pierces their feet because everything there is so much more solid than they are but when they were back when they got on the bus everything was solid to them there and they and they seemed more normal and so what you get is this transition zone and they start meeting various people who are very solid and they are also called spirits but they are much more real seem much more real and and these people that come off the bus all seem like ghosts and they seem very pitiful and the people that are meeting them are trying to convince them to come with them to this other place where they can truly become solid and become real and experiencing experience all the joy everlasting and so the book is a lot of um a lot of conversations and a lot of scenes that the characters see that are and they're being you know trying to be given understanding and lured into this this other realm and C.S. Lewis uses these different vignettes to provide us with ways of thinking about charity and love and heaven and selfishness and greed and all of these different things. And so I think from a from a broad overview, that's kind of what you get. It's it's like an allegory. And some have compared it to another version of Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, if you've ever read that by John Bunyan. But C.S. Lewis himself wrote a version of that called The Pilgrim's Regress early in his career. So it's not the first time that he's kind of used this formula. But in a nutshell, that's kind of the overall feeling and idea of it. And you see a lot of these vignettes where people are making a lot of excuses and a lot of reasons why they just can't move to this new world. They have to go back on the bus and go back to the city where they started. Yeah, that um, that's the uh, th- that's a synopsis. I'm going to give another synopsis and probably uh, duplicate a lot of that, but try and provide enough detail that people can kind of try to get into the story a little bit. So we we have the main character, and the benefit of the main character in a literary sense is he's the observer. That that's what's going on. He's the observer for our benefit, and his processing and learning in the situation is our processing and learning in the situation, and it's set in kind of a, a, a it's it's set in like a, a dreamlike state and the the first opening line is i seemed to be standing in a busy queue uh so it's a it's 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 i mean so it just, it just jumps in and this the main character whoever he is he's never named is essentially you you're supposed to experience this allegory through the character and and you are in the character's head and hearing what he's hearing and you know thinking what he's thinking and he's in this the, as brian described this very drab dreary town where everybody is just very self-focused there's nothing redeeming he, he kept saying i kept thinking i would get to the better part of town but they were all terrible <laughs> like there is no good part of this town and he keeps walking and walking and there's and and he just keeps finding more and more and more of the same and then he and, and encountering you know just just 
people that you don't want to spend any time around just very rough, rude, self-oriented people like, you know, who, who literally won't help somebody who's lying on the street or who, and, and are happy to, you know, get into a physical fight over almost anything. And he winds up standing in line and he's not sure what the line is for. And then it turns out it's for a bus and the bus shows up and there's, he has a lot of conversations, interactions in line. And he winds up, you know, in a very unruly way, kind of managing to get on this bus. And he's not quite sure what it's all about. And the bus is, is amazing. It's a, uh, you know, this, this, uh, gorgeous vehicle with a shining light driver and, and the bus essentially takes them to heaven. And as Brian described, when they get there, they're of so little substance that when I say they, I mean the, the bus passengers. But there's one hint there, right? When he gets yep. on the bus, yep. the shining light bus driver holds his hand in front of his face so that the people getting on the bus can't see his face. Yeah. Yeah. He tries. It's like, he does. why is that? Yeah. You know, and, and he says he's also trying to wave away the stench of the city. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so as, as so they're on the bus. And you got this group of people, and these are the people who become the characters for the later vignettes. Um, and as the bus lifts off, it's a flying bus. It flies to heaven. But first, they get the uh, this. They recognize that the city they're leaving behind is is basically infinite, and that what's described is that all the people in there can't stand the people around them so much that they keep moving and moving and moving further and further out and the city just expands and creeps and expands and creeps and everybody just gets more and more isolated until they're living, you know, a million miles from anywhere in some shabby little house. And it's just them because nobody else can stand to be around them. And that's a, you know, that comes back to C.S. Lewis's theology on hell. And so the bus arrives in this other place. And C.S. Lewis is clear to say it's not directly heaven. It's like the edge of heaven or like kind of a, the, it's the beginning of heaven. And the bus stops and all the people get off, you know, these spirits and they're of so little substance that you can kind of see through them. And it hurts to walk on the grass. It's hard to balance and because they're not really compatible with the world. And what happens for the rest of the book is each one of these spirits has a heavenly spirit come to see it, come come and visit it. And it's and in every case, it's somebody that um, they knew or is influential in their life. And the heavenly spirit is essentially trying to convince these spirits from hell to stay in heaven. And they promise them, if you stay, you will gain substance. You you will become a native of this land. It's going to take some time, though, because you're going to have to grow into this land because you're completely incompatible with this land. Again, he's not making a theological statement. He's not saying that that you know this is what's going to happen in heaven and that everybody gets a chance to make the choice. But but he is saying everybody has to make their choices. And so the the bulk of the book is the conversation, first of all, there's some really neat descriptions of this heavenly land and it's, it's very striking and will really stay with you. If you, if you read it, you'll, you'll keep certain images in mind and because it's this land of just infinite, just beauty and light, but it's still hinted at that. It's, you're just seeing the very, very edge and there's these distant mountains. And if you stay in heaven, then you, you, you move towards the center and and it's a long journey but the journey is what you know turns you into a native of the land so the bulk of the book is the conversations between the heavenly spirits and the spirits from hell 
and the heavenly spirits trying to convince the spirits from hell to stay in heaven instead of going back to hell. And that sounds so obvious. It sounds like, well, of course, who would want to go back to hell? The problem is that hell is where you can have infinite selfness, and heaven requires you to just let go of it. And so what he does is he uses these vignettes to tackle, uh, and when I say vignettes, what I mean is these different conversations that happen between a heavenly spirit and a, a, a hellish spirit or a purely human spirit and he to tackle different kinds of reasons why we and you'll and, and if you read the book honestly you'll be able to relate to every single one of them why we refuse to move towards god and choose ourselves instead and it's a little depressing for a while because the first several interactions everybody chooses to go back to hell no, like, I don't know if you guys felt the same way, but I was like, it takes a while before you get to one where somebody like really, you know, gets it. And it's like, oh, I'm willing to set anything down to stay here because the the love and forgiveness that's offered is so much better than what I had there. And I, and self is, I'm not that, not that interested in myself. And what he shows is just the agonizing struggle over and over of a human being trying to decide self or Christ. And and how you know what a what a terrible struggle that is, and that each human being has to ultimately make an infinite decision. Well, and this really comes back to these these concepts that Jesus had of you know to to live is Christ. Well, it's I was going to say, health. like Go for in it. the pre, in an earlier episode when you and Dan talked about the Book of Enoch, you know, in a nutshell, the Book of Enoch was expanding and shedding light, adding more more record for you to read about for a specific thing that was in the Bible. In a way, if you think about the parable of the feast with the king who's who's inviting all of these people, and then they, you know, the other nobles, and what do they say? Well, I, I just bought a field. I need I need to go check it out. Or I've got to go try my oxen. Or I just got married. I need to go take care of my wife for a while. And they refuse to come to the feast. And so God says, well, let's go get all these other people, bring them to the feast. And in a way, these conversations are an expansion and an enlightening of that type of an of an attitude that Jesus very quickly gave a couple of points. Concerns about other things besides heaven are causing you to make a choice that is away from God as opposed to toward God. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, yes, very good point. And, and the way C.S. Lewis illustrates that choice is the heavenly spirits are humans. The hellish spirits are also humans, but the heavenly spirits are these, you know, beautiful, solid, strong, healthy, shining beings that, I mean, it's kind of what you would think of as like, you know, angels, you know, they're so native to that environment, you know, the and and they they luxuriate in the environment of heaven that the that the hellish spirits are like barely able to temporarily exist in and they can't and they're suffering the whole time they're there and they're giving the choice like do you want to be what God really made you to be or do you want to be self because if you're going to be self you're going to go back down to to hell and just spend eternity just being self there is there is this hint by the way and he doesn't spend a lot of time on this in heaven it's 
permanently sun, or at least it's uh, perpetually sunrise or has been. And in hell, it's perpetually twilight. And it is hinted at a few times that, that, that that transition is coming, that heaven will become day and hell will become night. So it, it, he leaves himself some wiggle room theologically that this is not a permanent state. It's a, it's an, it's an eternal choice that these humans are making. Nobody goes, nobody goes back to hell and then gets back on the bus and gives it another shot. But everybody who wants to get a shot on the bus gets a shot. So and everybody gets the chance to make this choice. If we go also to a previous podcast episode, when we did the one on Dr. Heiser and the unseen realm book, and I love we how talked a lot. These, Brian, keep it up. You're, you're, hey, you know what? It's all related, baby. It's all there. Yeah. We, that's a good, we point. talked about cosmic geography and that Eden and the mountain of God are all the same realm and they are God's realm. And when he created Adam and Eve, they were in God's realm and they were part of God's family and they were coexisting with the elder race, the other brothers and, you know, that God had created before um, the sons of God. And outside of Eden was chaos and their job was to subdue the world and bring Eden to the rest of the planet. And so we see this layout of cosmic geography where we have this this never-ending infinite city of darkness. And the farther you get from the center, the worse it is. And then you have to go to these foothills. And he says foothills in the book, which makes you think of mountains and the mountain of God. Heaven is in the mountains. And this yeah. lines up with a ton of biblical theology. And so he brings you to this border area where you can make a choice to go into the mountain of God if you're allowed, or you can stay out in the in the land of chaos and darkness. So I just want to throw that out there before we went into the vignettes. Yeah, it's a great it's a great point. And there's two things I'll add to that. One, as you said, if if you're allowed and you're only allowed if you choose to go, and everybody gets the chance to choose if they want to, to even have the choice. There is nobody that is rejected from heaven and in, in this you know paradigm that he's painting here and anybody who wants to get on the bus gets on the bus and anybody who wants to stay can stay but they can but they only stay if they're willing to to set self completely aside and then the second point i was making is um that nuance that you just described of oh if you know if you know enoch and if you know heiser then you realize that there's some real substance to some little tiny details, some kind of Easter egg details that are in here. And I'm just going to throw out that the more I read C.S. Lewis with the growing, uh, you know, spiritual warfare concept and the and the supernatural concept that we describe here on this podcast, and that some of you have heard our Genesis preaching and some of this other stuff, the the more I realize. C.S. Lewis knew some stuff, and I, I don't mean that flippantly. I mean, he he had some extreme insights into how this spiritual warfare stuff really works, and he kind of drops hints of it. He doesn't address it, you know, head You don't see him talking about the Book of Enoch or the Sons of God or making you know, stuff like that, but his his gift was making these really hard concepts relatable through story and fantasy and analogy. And if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, you know this. He tells stories to make them relatable. And they're not perfect stories, but they're but they're stories that show you kind of an analogy of Christ through Aslan the Island, uh, the, the Lion in Narnia, for example. So really 
that, that's his gift. And, but, but don't be just because he simplifies things in stories doesn't mean that he was simple in his theology. His theology is very deep and his understanding of spirituality was very deep. And you get a, an understanding when he talks about human struggle and human rejection of Christ, you get a good understanding of the stuff that he struggled with because he couldn't write about it w- with such precision and such intimacy if he didn't know what each and every one of these struggles are, or if he hadn't suffered through these kinds of struggles on the receiving end of it from how other people inflict it. So, um, okay. So I think what would be helpful to go into now is, and and I don't think we have to do it chronologically or sequentially in the, the way the story does. If you want that, read the book. It's not a long book. It's not a hard book. It is a little bit cerebral and a, a you know a little bit intellectual. But so was C.S. Lewis. He was a cerebral intellectual guy. But it is entertaining, and it's not a it's it's a heavy read. But it's not a you know it's not really hard. It's not Shakespearean language or anything. You can follow the story. Um, I think it would be helpful if we talk about some of the vignettes that are the conversation between, you know, the heavenly human versus the hell human and what, what happened in some of those discussions and we can, you know, pile on or add detail um, because that's what the story is. Are the, the, the choices that these hell humans make, whether they choose self or whether they choose to trust that God has something better for them and how they come to those choices in, in the conversations they have with the heavenly spirits who have come to meet them. So Dan, maybe I'll, I'll uh, punt to you if you've got one ready, just a vignette that really stood out to you that you really liked or something that was uh, convicting or thoughtful. And then Brian will give you a shot at it and I'll either add more or just pile on to what, to what you guys say. So take it away, Dan. Yeah. So, you know, a lot, a lot of these are basically the, the character is observing or, overhearing conversations and so i mean the 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 main character you know we are the main character and we're just like eavesdropping or or watching from behind a bush or something while these conversations happen i I will point it by the way the main character is not there for the purpose of making the choice it does because that that's not what's being confronted there's a hint of that but you get the sense that it's not the main character's time. And again, it's, it's set up in a dream like state, like he's being shown something and he's a participant from the hellish side, but it's hard. Uh, to however, tell. but there yeah, is a does teacher rest, he does wrestle with it. There is a teacher, like the character's yes. name is teacher. And so there are a lot of direct conversations between you as the protagonist and the teacher and the teacher is explaining different things and different conversations that are being observed as well. So there is that part of it. Yeah. And we'll save the, uh, whenever you're, whoever wants to, you know, shed the light on who the teacher is, is kind of a fun, fun little thing too. So yeah. Dan, I'll give it, I'll give it back to you. I just want to make sure people understand that as we're describing, we, the observer, who's the main character is watching the hell human and the heaven human, or maybe there's better terminology, have a conversation about whether or not this hell human is going to choose to stay in heaven and what it will take to make that choice. Yeah. And, and so these conversations are also insightful. Like you see the different motivations of the people and like what they're holding on to that they just can't let go of. Uh, one, one in particular was a guy who I would say call um, an intellectual, uh, someone who might even think of themselves as a Christian, but uh, you know, obviously not 
a, a true believer, but um, you know he's being told by the heavenly person that we know nothing of religion here. We think only of Christ. So, uh, side note there that Christ is mentioned by name. He is. You're right. You got me. <laughs> I mean, I was trying to think like I can't remember if he was ever directly mentioned, and you're right. He, he was. So, so good job. So we think nothing. Uh, we think only of Christ. We know nothing of speculation. Come and see. I will bring you to eternal fact, the father of all other facthood. So, right, the heavenly one is talking about truth and fact. And truth is really important. And, uh, you know, we try to talk about truth on this podcast. And we talk about some weird things and some things that are a lot of speculative things and things we don't necessarily know. But we that's why we always bring it back to Christ, because Christ is truth and is is the fact. Okay, so this, so this guy comes back to, um, and as a response, the the ghostly man says, "I should object very strongly to describing God as a fact. The supreme value would surely be a less inadequate description." Uh, and and so he he goes on to to talk about how you know how intellectual he's trying to be with it, and that these great mysteries uh, can't really be. A, a, you know, talked about as fact and that, you know, if, if you're talking about facts, you're not talking about it, something that has any really religious significance. And, you know, he says, God for me is something purely spiritual. And, uh, and then later he says that we even have a little theological society down there. Oh yes, there's plenty of intellectual life. And so just you know, that struck me that like there could there will be people who uh, who are so um, self-centered and can't lay themselves down that are happy to sit down and have theological discussions and and think that they're spiritual and, and do it all in those ways without actually laying their lives down to Christ. And so I thought that was uh, interesting and convicting. And we can pass it on to well, somebody else wants to add anything on that one. Yeah. So let's, let's, what is it like for each of these? I think it's helpful if we try to try to summarize, what is it that the ghost is unable to let go of? What is it that would make this, you know, the, the, the hell human, the ghostly being, I think that's a good word for what's called the ghost. Cause they look like ghosts in heaven. Cause they're, they're so insubstantial. Um, each of them has something that they're having to, to really struggle with to say, am I going to, uh, to, to set this down and, and go see what God has for me and see what he will make me? Or do I have a sense of my own identity that is so important to me that if it's not compatible with heaven, then I'm not compatible with heaven? Can you kind of pinpoint? I know you hinted at it and got pretty good there with some of it, but if you can uh, try and uh, nail that down to say th this one was struggling with this. Yeah, so this this guy w just really wanted to uh, be intellectual and think about the the theories of spiritualism and uh, could not grasp that there was an actual fact of that Christ is is real and died for us and we need to accept his forgiveness 
he just wanted to talk about it and think about it and uh, didn't want to be told that there was an actual choice to make. So I have a particular bent on that, on that one too. Um, Have you ever heard the phrase, someone's educated beyond their intelligence? The idea of putting it. Yeah. The idea is that the, the person that's being described in this particular, this ghost encounter, they have learned a great deal of knowledge about religion in general. And there's a certain aspect of pride and these are the kind of people that will talk about the common man versus us and the common man facts are okay for them. And you, you know, the old, the old saw in the church of Jesus said it, I believe it. It's good enough for me, you know? And I struggled with this one personally, because I, I don't necessarily like to have huge confrontations, intellectual confrontations, And I want to try to understand the other person's point of view all the time. And a tendency in doing that is slipping or not really stating what you truly believe because you're just trying to get along. You know what I mean? And it's easier to talk about these big lofty ideas that don't impact us on a daily basis. They don't, they don't really mean anything. They're just, theories that we can chat about and we can discuss the merits of one theory over another theory. And there's a problem. It becomes very detached where it's like, it it is because I can't know for certain, because I know I'm so smart as to know that there's an objection to everything. Then I can't possibly submit myself to any idea because I have to master an idea before I accept it. And then once, when it's accepted, then I'm above it. It becomes the agnostic view. It becomes, I believe there's a divine being, but I don't believe we can ever be smart enough to know anything about him. Which sounds humble, but is... It's very prideful. Actually very, very prideful, yeah. So it's a pride issue with this guy, I think. That that was how it struck me in that particular vignette when I read it and I recognized pieces of myself in what he was saying. That was the issue. It's like, you know what? Get off the fence, buddy. You got to pick a side. Yeah. And, you and have almost to... all of these come back yes. to pride on some level. That's true, which makes sense because sin very often comes back to self, which pride is one of the primary ways that self is expressed. But the the Bible has a lot to say about pride. Yeah, (laughs) I think I think it's in there. Uh, So I want to take that that phrase you use of "get off the fence, pick a side," and say it's not a perfect analogy, but it's like this guy said, "I can't possibly get off the fence because I am an extremely skilled fence walker, and I like hanging out with fence walkers." And so we all walk the fences and we all talk about the benefits and merits of one side or the other. And we, and why would we ever get off the fence? We're up above it. We're up above it all here on the fence and I'm not getting off the fence. And ultimately he makes a decision of like, uh, if there's no like intellectual argument, if there's no, if there's no academy of discussion around the reality of God or the merits of God or the pros and cons of the nature of God, if that's not happening in heaven, which obviously it wouldn't be because it's God's very presence, then he's like, then I have no interest. I'm going to go back down to hell and hang out with the people who want to talk about that with me, even though they're all jerks. That's right. And it reminds me of the biblical story of Paul in the Areopagus, where he's meeting with all of these different Greek philosophers, and they're, they just meet there every day, and they discuss all the new ideas. Was this like and Acts Paul, 17? Yeah, maybe, near the end of 16, Acts. Somewhere, yeah, so it was 16, and, 17, somewhere in there. And he says... 
oh, well, I see that you have this uh, this monument to the unknown God. So I'm going to go ahead and talk to you about the unknown God. And so then he brings Christ into the picture and he, he tells them about the gospel. And so then you have the reactions that the Bible tells us in that passage. Some of them said, we don't want to hear anything from you. Get away from us. And, and a few of them believed him. And then some of them came and said, hey, could you come back? We'd like to hear more about this. Those guys are this guy in the vignette. They're the ones yeah, that are like, let's keep talking about this. This is really interesting. I haven't heard these ideas before. And they've been, you know, spending their time day after day after day just talking about new ideas. And this is just the latest one that they want to talk about. So, And it, it actually says in the passage, it says, for all they like to do for, for all they did every day was talk about the latest ideas, but there were some people who were different, who were convicted, who believed, who listened, but the, the majority of them just sat around and philosophized and said, anybody who can bring a new idea is welcome here. So come back and tell us more of this crazy, ridiculous idea that you have about this God man who died. That's a great question again. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, Brian, um, I appreciate what you added to, uh, the vignette that Dan chose there. What what was one that really stood out to you? Uh, or I can jump into one, but um, I want to give you a chance to pick one of your favorites and one that you think is really worth putting a little detail in. And I'm sure we'll add our own thoughts. Dan, did you have anything else on on that one? By the way, which you're, you're welcome to if you do. But I know we kind of no. Let's keep it. Let's keep it moving. Okay. I don't know how many vignettes there are, but it's like it's like ten or so. It's a bunch. We're not going to go through all of them in detail. No, I mean there's some there's some just real nuggets in here. Um, yeah, there's a few things that I you know in my paper copy of the book I'd I'd have underlined, and this is on like you know page 105 at least in the copy I have. Um, it says brass is mistaken for gold more easily than clay is, and if it finally refuses conversion, its corruption will be worse than the corruption of what ye call the lower passions. It is a stronger angel, and therefore, when it falls, a fiercer devil. So they're having this conversation about another conversation that they witnessed. And then later in that same that same passage, there's this is almost to me like the money shot of the whole book. So there so is, but just to frame this, this is uh, the teacher. This is the teacher the who's who's talking to the observer, and he's telling him, he's explaining to him some things, and the and the and the observer, you, are asking questions, and trying to understand. And he said, and the teacher says, I doubt if he knew clearly what he meant, but you and I must be clear. There is but one good, that is God. Everything else is good when it looks to him, and bad when it turns from him. And that's kind of the summary in a way of the whole thing. Mm. And it's in the yeah. middle of the vignettes. Yeah. But so you can, you can jump on that one. But the, the other one that really got me was the, the, the long passage about the, the, the great lady who was being honored and she had all of these children around her and all of these animals around her. And he says, what is this woman? What is she doing? What, what are all these children? And he says, they're all her children. And he says, well, that's a huge family. And he said, well, they, they're other people's children. And it's like, well, did, what about their parents? And he said, well, the kind of relationship that she has with all of these children is that when they go back to their family, 
their families are better and stronger and they learn how to appreciate their own families better. And then he applies the same kind of logic to all of these dogs and cats and different animals that by, by the outflow of her goodness that she got from God, she's making all of these different things better within their own native environment. So, and uh, I'll summarize that by saying, she so you was, jump, jump on that she's one. Yeah. Showing, she's showing the, she's spreading the love of Christ. Constantly. That's correct. That's what she's and, doing. And every, every living being that came near her experienced the love of Christ because she was so plugged, plugged into the love of Christ. And what I love about that one, and, and again, this is not a vignette, such as a description of, of a person, but on earth, she was a very common person. And in heaven, she's this highly revered person. And it, it's always showing that, that what God is looking at, what God honors is so different than what humans honor. Cause she's like this queen and, and, and I say that loosely, I don't mean queen in like the Catholic sense of queen of heaven, but she has like an entourage and great honor and great fanfare, but she, and she's humble and loving and everywhere she goes, she's surrounded by and followed by these people to whom she showed the love of Christ, whether it's birds or dogs or cats or children or adults, they love her and honor her and go with her everywhere she goes and sing songs and throw flower petals and, 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 and she was just like, some neighborhood lady, you know, back in the day. And then she has the, the her conversation with her, uh, her former husband, which is really CS Lewis constantly likes to make us think about the fact that what you are here, living your daily life, doing whatever career you're doing, the relationships that you have, it isn't what you are to God and it isn't what you are in heaven. That is so much greater and so much more imaginable. And we always forget that as we go along our daily lives. So a lot of his writing was constantly trying to get you to think about what it's going to be like in heaven and how God sees you when you're one of his children. The love that he has for you and the esteem that you're given. And when the Bible says that the angels rejoice, right? So this is the sons of God are rejoicing over one who was brought back into the fold, so to speak. And that level of emotion, that level of love and just celebration that is in heaven for his children, every single one of them, is something that we constantly and unendingly forget or never knew or don't think about. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about Lewis is constantly reminding the readers of his works to think about what heaven really is to, you know, how God views us and our, in our actual position as a, as a child of God in the kingdom. It's just, mm. it's amazing. It is. And if you want more insight into the mind of CS Lewis, then we haven't mentioned it yet, but the teacher that he meets and the, basically the heavenly spirit who meets him in heaven to guide him and follow, you know, talk him through things. And, and, and it kind of sort of is going the direction of he has to make this decision, but that's not really what the book is about. It's not about the, the main character's decision. The main character is, is CS Lewis, but it's also us as the observer. Um, the teacher that he meets is George MacDonald, the author. And George MacDonald, if you don't know, if you're not familiar with him, he wrote a lot of incredible theological works in the fantasy kind of realm. He wrote The Princess and the Goblin, Princess and Curdie. He wrote Lilith, At the Back of the North Wind, 
the light princess sir gibble um i'm in a bunch of short stories and stuff as well and and uh, fairy tale kind of things extremely mystical guy oh he also the one that the one that he wrote like mid to late 1800s um he wrote one called a uh, fantasties or fantasties fant with a ph that was absolutely instrumental in converting c.s lewis to christianity it was him reading that book on a train and it changed him forever so that's who he meets in heaven and that's who's explaining these things to him. So if, you, if you're trying to understand C.S. Lewis and you're trying to understand the influences that shaped this great academic theologian, you got to go back to George MacDonald. And uh, Brian, I don't know, I know you probably are somewhat familiar with George MacDonald. I don't know if you have anything to add here, but talk about a, a when I was saying before, like the more I read C.S. Lewis and go, oh, this guy, he knew some stuff about like this deep spiritual difficult truth. Well, I well, mean, everybody George McDonald knew 10 times as much. And, and, you know, everybody, we always talk about Tolkien as being the father of fantasy. He's right? not, he was Lord, too late. The Lord of the he, Rings. Yeah. But the, the princess and the goblin and their related books, because I think there's several that are within that same kind of storyline. That was 1890 something. Yeah. That he wrote that. And he wrote Lilith, which is and, and Lilith, yeah, and these way out there. I mean, you got to read these books if you're interested at all in this, but they're they're approachable because they are written in in a fantasy format. I've read the and Princess and the Goblin, and I'm currently sort of reading or partway through reading the Princess and Curdie to my children, and they love it. But there's exactly. a lot of profound truth in it, and that's it's like uh, there's a book by uh, Kurt Bruner. Um called finding god in the lord of the rings and kurt was i don't know if he's still there but he worked for folks on the family for a lot of years um he also wrote one called finding god in narnia but it's a lot easier to find god in george mcdonald than it would be in uh tolkien because tolkien's more symbolic right yeah, a lot more symbolic, and he hides things a little bit. And Lewis hid them less in, like, Chronicles of Narnia. It's it's easier to get to the Christian uh, story and this Christian background than it might be within Lord of the Rings. And then MacDonald was even even more, but it's very approachable. Well, and, and while we're talking about this, and we'll get back to the vignettes in just a minute here, you have to recognize that... This book that we're talking about, I don't know if it was published in, but I know the foreword was dated 1945 in Britain. So what's going on in Britain in 1945? You're you're talking World War II. Everybody's life had been turned upside down in World War II. And remember, Tolkien was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis. And so every, every thought uh, was shaped by... World War II and, you know, the Nazi invasion, because this, this was a clear and present danger and, and was just the absolute narrative of life for them. And so when you look at Lord of the Rings, yes, there's a lot of theology in it and there's a lot of good versus evil in it. And if you want to get a, if you want to overlay something on it, it's, you can overlay the World War II narrative on it pretty cleanly. And in that, of course, you can draw out some gospel narratives of good versus evil and some of these sorts of things. But it's not as direct, blunt gospel narratives as, um, as you know, Narnia, for example, where C.S. Lewis, is he's, he's, he's really bluntly putting Christ forward. And George MacDonald, you know, did, did some of that as well. And 
the word that comes to mind with George McDonald is he, he's even more mystical. Yeah, I agree. He's, he's, he was, he was kind of a, what you might call a Christian mystic in, in some of the ways that he tried to communicate. And, but I mean, it's, it's well worth going back and reading those, you know, it's in the same vein of like some people who let's go read Jules Verne and journey to the, you know, 20,000 leagues under the sea and things like that. Um, similar time frame that George MacDonald was writing in. And so, for what it's worth with Tolkien, if it helps, and, and again, Tolkien and Lewis were friends. They they influenced each other's work. They read each other's work. I would imagine that C.S. Lewis's lack of discipline around his story creation probably drove Tolkien nuts because obviously the Lord of the Rings is probably the highest bar ever in terms of you know creating a very disciplined, distinct uh, universe or or fantasy land. Well, but for a what quick it's story worth, about that is is the. Uh... So Tolkien had been working on The Lord of the Rings and Lewis was working on Narnia, but he was afraid to show it to Tolkien because he told him some of the beginning ideas of the story. And Tolkien told him, why are you writing children's books? You need to write stuff for adults. This is ridiculous. And that was after he gave him the, I think it was the the transcript for... um, the first book in the Narnia ones that he wrote, which was, what was it called? Not a horse and his boy. It was the one before that. Lion, witch and wardrobe. No, that was written later. Oh, yeah, that was later. The first yeah. one was the, the uncle of them and the chronology. Of, of them yes. Are not the same. Yeah. Yeah. And so he, uh, he, he read, he gave him magician's that book. nephew. Magician's That's nephew. the one, the magician's nephew. He gave him that to read. And he, he said, this is rubbish. Why are you wasting your time on this? So Tolkien <laughs> basically said, Oh, and he went and finished all these manuscripts and he put them away and wasn't Lewis, going to sorry, publish you, you them. I'm so, sorry, so Lewis. Lu- yeah. Lewis took his all of his transcripts for the whole Narnia Chronicles and he's like, I'm not, I can't publish these. This is ridiculous. And he put them away. And then years later, he pulled them out and he said, you know what? These are great. So he published them, but he didn't tell <laughs> Tolkien. He literally yeah. didn't tell him that he published these books. So it was, it was kind of a funny story where one of the greatest you know, Christian fantasy book series ever written was almost never published because Tolkien was like, this is child stuff. Stop it. Well, and, and compared to Lord of the Rings in terms of the technicalities of it, it is. Absolutely. But, but in terms of the quality of the message, it's not. It's and I'll, A couple of, it's it makes Tolkien sound like a jerk, but he's not. Tolkien was actually pretty instrumental in C.S. Lewis's coming to Christ because he was not dazzled by C.S. Lewis and, and because he would tell him where he was wrong and he would straight up challenge him. So the, the, the way I understand it is Tolkien was a, a, a Christian before Lewis and they would have these conversations and Lewis would explain his reasoning for, for being an agnostic basically. And Tolkien would say, no, you're wrong. Let me, let me show you a very rigorous argument for why you're wrong. And so this is how these guys made that made each other better. And they were Friends, but for what it's worth, The Hobbit was written before World War One. I. I think it was published in thirty-seven. I think, and then the the Lord of the Rings trilogy was written. I'm sorry, I said World War One. World, World War Two. Yeah. yeah, World War Two is what I was trying to get back to. So The Hobbit was written prior to World War Two, or as, during the build-up to World War Two, and then the trilogy, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, was written after the fallout of World War Two, and so that you get the you can see how there's there's a changing or a shaping going on there 
And whereas Lewis at one point, I don't know if it was immediately after World War II or during World War II, the uh, the the British radio broadcast, whatever, the, you know, kind of the state supported one, brought him onto the radio at one point to explain Christianity to the the people of Great Britain. That was during World War II. It was during World War II. It was right after. And that is the book that became Mere Christianity. Right. Probably All of the radio CS broadcasts were. Known. Yes. And, and, and the it reason was they did popular. that, it was because he was trying to explain the, like, he, the, the inverse of the, 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 the Nazi worldview. They were saying, okay, what are the Nazis? What's not Nazi? And how do we make sure we never become that? And they literally said, let's get this guy, Clive Staples Lewis, on the radio to explain to the entire nation how the reasoning of Christianity works. Because they were they were trying to provide encouragement, uplifting, but also a protection against the ideas of what Nazi Germany was spreading. And that was, uh, that was how they chose to do it. And that did become mere Christianity, which has influenced millions of early Christians and, and later Christians, but especially early Christians who are trying to understand Christianity and the reasoning of it, uh, including myself. It was instrumental in, in some of my er, forming of my early thoughts around Christianity. So it's uh, so quite, quite the detour, but um, hopefully helpful, uh, hopefully fun conversation for those of you who are Lord of the Rings buffs. Um, or Narnia buffs or enjoy it. There aren't a lot of Narnia buffs. People are familiar with it. They like the books. Lord of the Rings obviously has an entire following. Tolkien was a brilliant guy. You know, he wrote, he, he created languages for his books. And C.S. Lewis is like, I'm going to throw Santa Claus into mine. And that must have just drove Tolkien absolutely crazy. <laughs> so, um. <Yeah>. Well, <laughs> and before we jump back into the actual topic of our podcast, we'll say in the future, we should do a book called Planet Narnia, written by the foremost C.S. Lewis scholar named Michael Ward, who's at Oxford. And he determined through research and reading and Tolkien's, I mean, sorry, C.S. Lewis's notes and everything related to it, a unifying theme across all of the Narnia books, because the Narnia books were always very criticized by them being kind of disjointed and how do they fit together. And there was a lot of criticism by literary types on the actual writing and structure and how different stories in the Narnia Chronicles followed a different structure than the previous ones. And that just made everybody mm. upset. And so they said, he's not really a good writer. That was said about Lewis in the press mm, yeah. that he wasn't really yeah. a good writer. Well, Michael Ward found based on medieval celestial spheres research, because Tolkien first and foremost was a professor of English literature and he was fascinated by the Tolkien or Lewis view. was. I'm sorry, Lewis. I keep saying yeah, Tolkien. Yeah, Lewis. Right. Lewis was an English literature professor at Oxford, and he was fascinated by the medieval uh, worldview and their view of God and what they called the celestial spheres. And each one of those different spheres ties into one of the Narnia books. And if you know that background, which Lewis never told anyone, then they all fit together beautifully it's it's amazing actually how well he crafted that story around this underlying truth that was in his mind about well, okay it. so that that's a perfect example of how the more i learn and then read c.s lewis i come back to going 
oh, this guy knew stuff. Like he, like I, I can learn something that I think is this profound, ancient as, and you know, we talk about really ancient stuff on here. We talk about, you know, Enoch and Dead Sea Scrolls and, you know, uh, demons and heaven and hell and death and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Well, he, I, I'm, I don't know why I'm surprised, but it's like, oh, he's really, really up to speed on this stuff, but he doesn't put it in your face. And so that's a really good yep. example of how, like, if the, the people who were criticizing him were too ignorant to follow what he was saying in the similar, and that reminds me, Brian, of our uh, uh, discussion on, on Heiser and, you know, him pointing out that if you criticize or can't follow Revelation, it's because you don't know the Old Testament well enough. And, uh, exactly. and, and I put myself in that category. I've struggled to follow it because John is so profound on the Old Testament that you you, you can't, uh, you know, it's it's hard to follow because he's he's three steps ahead. And I think C.S. Lewis is in that, even though he did not write super tight narratives or super tight story. He didn't create languages for Narnia. He he wrote to a, a an audience that was both um, younger and dumber and wiser in a lot of ways than the Lord of the Rings stuff. And that's why the gospel comes through, you know, ringing so loudly and, and so clearly in the Narnia series. Whereas, you know, the Lord of the Rings series is uh, an incredible piece of writing, but and, and incredibly nuanced and and so detailed. And you can spend a t- lot of time in there and you can see these gospel truths in it, but it wasn't really why I think, I think Tolkien was a little more focused on trying to write, you know, the, the, the best story whereas Lewis was very focused on trying to get people to see Christ. Yep. So very true. Dan, well, that was, that was a rabbit hole. (laughs) It was a good one though. (laughs) And speaking of rabbit holes, you know, who else wrote, uh, in, uh, in Oxford was Lewis Carroll. And, uh, he, uh, this is a a short (laughs) rabbit hole and he wrote Alice in Wonderland and he wrote it sitting under a tree next to the Thames in Oxford and I have this great memory of I sat under that tree and read uh, Alice in Wonderland, not knowing until later that that was where it was written. My only so, question is, were you also on opium? No, no, nor was because I. Because he was. Because he <laughs> and, was. <laughs> and he probably was. On, he probably was both of those things. But he could write a, a mean story. You know, so that's he, right. But it was way to uh, tie in rabbit hole in a major way, though. You know, when you said rabbit hole in Oxford, I was like, I just got to share this. I I got to read <laughs> Alice in Wonderland story on the spot it was written. I've also read The Shining in Room Two Seventeen, where Stephen King wrote it in the Stanley Hotel. So I like I like the I like to go back to the origins of these. So okay, uh, moving on. So Dan, let's uh, grab another vignette from The Great Divorce and put it on the table, and we'll all kind of sink our teeth into it. Okay, so there's another one where there's a woman who comes, and so the ghostly woman is talking to her um, brother, is her is the heavenly counterpart, and uh, she's disappointed that it's him because her son had died previously, and she was really hoping it was him, and uh, she just could not uh, let go of her so son. I, I'm going to jump on that because I'm so glad you brought this one up. If you if I was bringing one up, this would be the one. So the, the woman is the ghost who's in, who's visiting heaven from the bus. Her brother comes to meet her and she's disappointed it's him because she really thought her son who had died while he was young, apparently should have been the one to come meet her in heaven. And so she's like, oh, it's you. 
why isn't and her son's name is michael why isn't michael here yeah and so she's obsessed with her son and really makes everything just about uh, getting back with like having getting him back she had you know it basically comes out that she had thrown away her other uh, her husband and her other kids uh, just because she was so obsessed with with her son and what happened to him and and so the brother tells her that you know her love for her son wasn't really as pure as she thought and and so she says you know what right have you to say things like that about mother love it is the highest and holiest feeling in human nature and he responds pam pam no natural feelings are high or low holy or unholy in themselves they are all holy when god's hand is on the ring and they all go bad when they set up on their own and make themselves into false gods and so then the conversation continues for a bit and she just keeps on arguing for for her own rightness and you know arguing from this uh, place of pride that you know she loved and she loved well and she just wants him back and and she's just claiming that she's right uh, another really great line is is the brother finally says that's what we find that we all find out when we reach this country is we've all been wrong that's the great joke there's no need to go on pretending one was right after that we begin living and and so you know that that in itself you know i think we all have to approach all this stuff with some understanding that we're going to realize we were wrong about some things um, that's why it's so critical to always bring it back to christ because that's that's the there's Christ is not real blurry and he's much bigger than we think. Right. And there's no condemnation of people being wrong in this book. They're wrong. And, and like, you know, that's, you know, when you bring up the, the heavenly um, being saying, Hey, that's the big joke. Like every one of us had to learn to set things down and go, Oh, I was wrong about that. But it's not, you're not punished for it in heaven because Christ took that for us. And that's, that's the great, you know, that's the great truth. That's a great joke. There's no condemnation. And it's at Romans 8, 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. However, some of these uh, ghostly spirits, the, the, the hell spirits or the hell humans, they, they can't accept that. And so, and and I'm just going to kind of repaint a little bit of the, the details of what you we're describing Dan because this is one of my favorite vignettes because it's one of the hardest vignettes. What you have is a mother who lost her son and spent the rest of her life grieving for her son to the extent that she neglected her her daughter and husband and basically ruined their lives because she refused to ever move on from the loss of her son. It was and it was all under the pretense of my love for my son was so great that I cannot possibly move on from this. And she ruined her life and every life around her. And so when she takes the bus to heaven, she's fully expecting to be reunited with her son. And she's told things like, your son wouldn't even be able to see you in your current state. He, and, and her brother is there to try to bring, to say like, hey, come, you know, come, like, come see Christ, come see God, come learn to love heaven and grow and substantiate and grow into heaven and you'll get time with your son. And she's like, no, 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 this, I'm not here for Christ. I'm not here for God. I'm, I'm, I'm just here to, for my son. And, and she it, would rather bring her son with her to hell 
to have him. Right. It gets that dark. Yeah. Where, where the spirit points out, you would literally take your son from heaven to bring him to hell to be with you versus another, say that I was wrong about this. There's another corollary to this too. And this, so the it's very important that he points out and doesn't assign like, like the quote that Dan just read, you know, there's no, these feelings are not moral. They're not good or bad. It's, you know, if God's in it, then it's good. And if it's self or some other idol, then it's not good. But we do this all the time when we're having disagreements with people, uh, especially related to religion and politics and whatever, we just start assigning a moral value to the other person. We start to say, you are bad because you don't agree with me. And we don't necessarily say that out loud, but that's the attitude and the feeling that we get in ourselves. It's like, I'm right, and therefore you're evil, which isn't at all supposed to be the conversation. The, you know, The idea of civil discourse means... I can have an idea and you can have an idea and we don't agree on our ideas. So let's have a conversation about it and see if we can come to some uh, way of agreement or decide there's no point in having this conversation anymore. But I shouldn't think of you as a less valuable person or an evil person because you have this different mindset than I do. And I find myself struggling with that sometimes where I want to assign a moral value to someone because they disagree with me. And that's, you know, on the face of it is ridiculous, but emotionally that happens a lot. And I don't know if I'm the only person in the world that's like that, but I think that's one of the things that's happening in this vignette that Lewis brings out. Yeah. I mean, well, she's... Obviously you're not the only person like that. Cause that's, that's a, uh, you know, one of the, one of the most difficult things about Western society right now is everything because every opinion becomes a moral high ground so go ahead dan yeah well she i think you're you're spot on there brian because she says you know i don't believe in a in a god who keeps mother and son apart i believe in a god of love and no one has a right to come between me and my son not even god tell him that to him to his face and you know and i think sometimes we can get upset with god on the same type of level Maybe we wouldn't put it in those words, but we're like, oh, well, I wouldn't do this to to my creations if I was God. So therefore, part of us is thinking God is wrong and, and we've been wronged by God instead of realizing just how much more holy, how perfect God is that we can't even begin to comprehend it. Uh, we can sit there and kick against him and, and complain about what he's allowed to happen to us and what is what is going on in life, why life is so difficult and um, you know, we really end up making moral judgments against God because of pain that we experience. Well, and there's a lot of that, that if God really loved me, then he wouldn't take this thing from me that I love so much. That's the, uh, that's a, a big theme in uh, these conversations between the, the the ghosts and the heavenly beings 
is if God really loved me, then he wouldn't ask this of me. How could, how could a loving God really ask this of me? How, how could it be necessary that I have to set this thing down or set this self-concept down or set this self-worship down in order to stay here? And if that's what he's going to ask of me, I don't want any part of this and I'm out of here. And that's the, that's the rejection of God frequently. I've had um, a lot of conversations like that, including one recently with somebody who works in emergency services and has seen some really terrible things. And he's like, and he, well, he flat out said to me, the things that I've seen, a loving God would never allow in this world. And so uh, I, I can't accept any God that would allow those things. But the God that is presented in scripture is a God that was willing to become suffering and then observe suffering. So God didn't just suffer on the cross for us. He also watched him, his son suffer on the cross for us. Two incredible layers of suffering. I mean, any of us who are parents would rather accept suffering on ourselves than watch our children suffer. When you, know, when you love your child, you wouldn't wish your suffering on them and you would frequently wish their suffering on you. But, that's, but God did both. He suffered and he watched the suffering as a parent. And so this, this mother-child vignette with the, the, the mother who lost her son and turned her entire existence just into the loss of her son and inflicted that on everybody around her is a really poignant vignette because you keep in the back of your mind that God also lost his son and watched it. But because he... But because he wasn't trying to, uh, you know, turn that into an idol and because it was really about forgiveness and joy and restoration of joy, and it was really for the sake of other people, then that was an act of real love where this woman just wanted to make her entire identity about the loss of her son and force everybody to worship at the idol of her dead son, you know, proverbially. But that, you know, anybody who was going to, if you were going to be her friend, it's because you were going to honor and revere the memory of Michael, no matter what, you know, amen forever. And, and that was, that was what she inflicted on everybody around her. And it was, and she made it a living hell for everybody around her and then was willing to extend hell, try to extend hell into heaven. And that's what heaven won't abide. You can't extend hell into heaven. So the, a lot of these stories are what, what, what parts of hell which is self, are people trying to force into heaven that cannot abide in heaven? Let's, uh, uh, Brian or, or Dan, feel free to comment any more on that one. And let's hit one more vignette and then we'll, we'll, uh, or a couple of highlights of a couple of other vignettes and then we can uh, wrap up. Come on, Dan, you got one more in you? Well, I was going to actually go bring up something else before we hit a vignette is uh, something when he was talking to uh, the George McDonald character, um, something that you know, the teacher that he says uh, that kind of ties a lot of this together is he says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to, to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. And so you have all these people and all these vignettes are really just trying to, to 
figure out a way that they can hold on to some piece of their will or some of their own rights, their own um, justifications, uh, their own pain that they can't let go of. Their, uh, that's just a, a good common recurring theme. Um, another one of the, well, and, and, and I, I want to highlight that Dan, because that is such a good phrase that I, I've heard that quoted many times. Cause there are so many people out there who say, well, I could never believe in a God who, th- a loving God who throws people into hell. And the argument that Lewis is making here is he doesn't throw anybody into hell. People choose to go to hell because they refuse to be with him. They, they, you, if you, if you want to be with God, and you're willing to be with God based on what that entails, then he welcomes you. But if you don't want to be with God, he doesn't force you into, you know, an intimate relationship with him if you hate him. And all of the people who choose hell choose, it's a, it's an absolute blatant rejection of God and embracing of self. And so that, that line by the teacher that says there are two kinds of people, those who to whom, or those who, that they, who say to God, thy will be done, or those to whom God says, thy will be done. It's God's will or your will. And God's will is, you know, results in every good thing. And your will results in total self and the absence of God. And remember, God is, is the origin of, of all good things. Every good thing comes from God. So if you want to remove the source of all good and just leave self, well, that, that's, that's a pretty good recipe for the beginning of hell. Whereas uh, if you're willing to set self down, which is what Christ did, by the way, and as you can read in Philippians 2, then that is a pretty good recipe for the beginning of heaven. Set self down and look to God in obedience. And that's what he's asking. So it's a, that's a, a really helpful um, uh, theological point that Lewis is making there because that's such a common argument of rejection of God is, well, I can't believe in a God that a loving God that would throw people to hell. He's not throwing people into hell who are desperately wanting to be with him in heaven. That's not how it works. It's people are rejecting him and refusing to accept heaven because they hate him. So moving on to another one, there's, there's another guy who uh, you might say was, kind of a legalist type he's just keeps repeating over and over how you know he's he's done everything right he's he's never taken anything he didn't earn he he deserves what's coming to him he deserves what's his and he's not gonna accept grace to get into heaven he he's earned it and he it needs to be just if he's gonna get it it's because he earned it and he's paid to him and then he's talking to someone or comes across someone who uh he knew had murdered somebody and and he cannot fathom that this person could possibly be a part of heaven and so uh, and uh, that... uh, I, I want to go on with this but i'm just going to add a quick layer here so i i always think of this vignette i always think of this guy as the boss man guy so he's the boss man and he's always you know he's done what's right sir served his country, done his thing, does the best that he can and doesn't expect anything from anybody and doesn't expect any charity, doesn't take no handouts, whatever. And he expects the same from his employees. Um, And uh, the person that he meets in heaven is a former employee of his who was charged with murder. And so this is a guy who's the the moral high ground, self-made, pull yourself up by your bootstraps boss man. And then he meets somebody 
for whom he, the, the person that he always says, well, I'm better because I've never been that guy. And that's the heavenly being that he meets who, who's in heaven, who comes to talk to him. So go ahead, Brian, or I'm sorry, go ahead, Dan. Yeah. Well, so, you know, this guy and, and a lot of these people kind of start getting some suspicions about um, like, maybe this heaven thing isn't actually so great. You know, maybe, you know, why is the ground so hard? Why, what are these, are these people just trying to trick us? Um, what's, you know, they're they're suspicious of the the actual motives of these uh, heavenly beings that are coming and talking to them, and 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 this guy gets pretty convinced that well, if you're going to let somebody like that in here, I don't even want to be here, right? Because he's uh, self righteous and wants to get in on his own merits. Well, and and very much saying, well, I don't want to be part of any club that that person's in because I'm better than that person. That's the Pharisee. Another, yeah, it's another form of pride. Yeah. So I have a vignette that I'm going to read the first part of it. And then I just love this one, the imagery. <laughs> Wait, hold hold on. Before you go, there, I just want to make sure, Dan, did you get to, uh, did you have anything else on that one? No. Okay. Go for it. Brian. Okay. I saw coming towards us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. Like all the ghosts, he was unsubstantial, oh, this is but a they good differed, one. but they differed from one another as smokes differ. Some had been whitish. This one was dark and oily. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard, and it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. As we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you, he said. It wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smile. Then he turned and started to limp westward away from the mountains. Off so soon, said a voice. So let's talk about the lizard and this one. I'm not going to read the whole thing, obviously, but what is the lizard and what's going on here? Do you guys remember this one? The lizard is lust. That's correct. And the lizard, there's this whole conversation that happens. Okay. So the ghost basically says, thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good. You see, I told this little chap indicating the lizard that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on coming or on doing. Of course, his stuff won't do here. I realize that. But he won't stop. I shall just have to go home. And the angel, a spirit, says, would you like me to make him quiet? Said the flaming spirit. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, says the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, whoa, whoa, look out. You're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost. And so then they get into this whole conversation going back and forth where the angel's saying, well, the only thing that will work here is if I kill it get rid of it and this guy will not let him do it even though he says he wants him to do it yeah he so so okay and this is i, I love this one and i'm so glad you brought it up and and this will be a it's it's a, such a beautiful one because so many people can relate so this guy has a lust problem but really the lizard kind of works for any uh addiction because it's all very rationalized in his mind he's like i got him under control he's fine he, he promised to be good. And, uh, and, and this is the, you know, the, the ghost with this little lizard on his shoulder and the lizards whispering in his ear and influencing him. And he gets into a negotiation with the, the lizard on, um, you know, how, how they're going to work things out. But meanwhile, the angel's saying, if you'll, if you'll let me kill it, you can stay. And the, the ghost wants to stay and he wants the lizard gone, but he's really afraid 
of the suffering that he'll go through if the angel actually kills it. He's afraid of the angel. He's afraid of the lizard being killed. He's afraid of what it will be like to be without him. And so he's scared to death. And so he, so he's trying to, you know, politely decline all, and the angel is just becoming uh, increasingly insistent and getting his hands closer and closer and saying, let me kill it. Let me kill it. I'll yeah, kill it, it for you. And it's understood that it's not going to be painless for him if the lizard's killed. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to, they're both going to hurt. The lizard's going to die and the man's going to suffer because the lizard is part of him. And the angel's saying, let me rip it out and destroy it and smash it on the ground. And then guess what? You're free. And the guy's like, well, I want to be free, but how about I just make him be quiet? But every, every time that the angel comes close to him, the closer he comes, the more he feels like he's on fire burning. So he's constantly saying, no, 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 wait, 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 this hurts. So there's, there's all these different layers going on here. Absolutely. And keep going, Brian. It's, this is one of my, one of my favorites. I'm glad you brought it up. So how did they well, shake this out? Well, let's see. Um, I mean, in the beginning of that, obviously, this one, anybody who's ever struggled with any kind of an addiction can can really grab a hold of this, right? Um, because Lewis does a good job in, in, a, in a somewhat comical way of bringing out these different layers that a person would go through when, you know, they can't shake an addiction. They don't. They don't have, they don't have any way to, to bridge that gap between I I don't want this in my life, but I can't live without it, right? And there and and it's just a a level of fear and and control and um well and and by putting it in the form of like another voice, it's great because the lizard's like, don't let him kill me, I'll be good, you know, I'll I'll settle down. I promise not to cause you as many problems, you know. I'll 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 give you this and not that. Like he's trying to the lizard's trying to negotiate for his life. Which is, if the lizard lives, the spirit dies. That that's yes. the, the stake. If the lizard lives, the guy has to go back to hell. So the lizard's saying, no, no, "We'll work this out. We can find an equilibrium. You know, just don't don't let him kill. Don't let him destroy me." And so you're getting this this dialogue between this uh, between a, a, a human spirit and an addiction that's destroying him. And meanwhile, you have this angel standing there or, or a heavenly human being or some some heavenly spirit standing there saying, I can solve this for you now. It'll You'll suffer, but you'll be so much more yeah. on the other side of that. Well, he says, you know, he says, get back. You're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It's not so. But you're hurting me now. I never said I wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know. You think I'm a coward. But it isn't that. Really, it isn't. I say, let me run back by tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor. I'll come back the first moment that I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? Why are you jeering at me? How can I let you tear me to pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you just kill the damn thing without asking me before I knew? It would be all over now if you had. I cannot kill it against your will. It is impossible. Do I have your permission? Right. And that uh, I'm going to go get a second opinion. I want to come back. Let me go talk to somebody else and, and see if, you know, really it's see if they'll be more amenable to letting me do what I need to do or want to do. 
Let me buy some um, time. <laughs> yeah, let me buy some time. I don't want to deal. I don't want to deal with the problem now. Basically, yeah, I, I can have you kill it anytime I want. Yeah, it, it, you know that's the old. I, I can I can stop anytime I want. Yes, yeah, it's not really controlling me. Um, but anyway, then eventually he kills it. Yeah, and, and it builds up to this climax, and finally. The man who's in anguish and he's not strong in the moment. So, so the man, you know, the 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 hell man, the ghost, the, spirit, the ghost, yeah, the ghost. He's not strong in the moment. He he kind of like breaks down and is like, okay, if you insist, fine, you know, please, please go ahead and kill it. And I'm I'm paraphrasing, you know, right. but he's scared. He's scared to death, and he's not. He's it's, it's not like he mans up to the task. He just sort of breaks. And says, right. "Okay, I, I guess you can kill it, and you know, and I hope I don't die in the process. But whatever, you know." And so, and then the angel, uh, Brian, if you want to, if you want to no, tell it, you go can. ahead, go ahead. So then, this burning angel reaches out, and it, and it's agony for for the man who has a lizard, and the lizards, you know, screaming and protests, and and uh, you know, telling the telling the uh the ghost oh how can you let him do this to me i've always been good to you etc cetera, etc cetera. so the angel reaches out he grabs it he and he rips it off the man and crushes it and throws it on the ground and the man it hurts him i mean it's it's agony for the man or for the ghost and um and and then so you get this limp dead lizard body on the ground while the ghost is you know crumpled in his own heap and kind of coming to and lifting up his head and looking around and going, Oh, is it, is it really gone? Well, then, uh, then, then the, uh, the amazing thing that happens is the lizard body resurrects and it doesn't resurrect into the lizard. It resurrects into this incredible stallion of a horse that the ghost then jumps onto and races away for the foothills you know, towards the kingdom of God. And, and so there are a lot of lessons there, but part of the lesson is at the heart of his lust was something positive that given into the hands of God could be extremely positive, but because it had been so corrupted and distorted, it had to be destroyed and resurrected in order to be any, in order to be, you know, what, what it really could be. So there, there were, there's a, there's a, a, a seed of good that had been turned into something that was destroying this man's soul. And when he gave it over and when he surrendered it and let it go, then it turned into, you know, it it stopped blocking him from salvation. Yeah. Another, another way to say it is that any addiction is a perversion of something that is good. And when given into God's hands, the perversion part of it goes away and the good thing is left behind. And, That's a great point. Yeah, you know, so there's a lot of other lessons there. I think related to, you know, you're the sum of all of the moments that you've lived, and there's a lot of decisions that you've made in all those moments. And some of those decisions were bad, and some of them followed along and went from bad to worse and continue to go down bad roads, and when you redeem something or you defeat something, you, you overcome an obstacle in your life related to bad decisions that you've made. Um, Those things don't leave you. 
they're part of you now. But now they're transformed and they make you into a stronger version of yourself. And this is this is the this is what God does. This is called the process of sanctification in a lot of ways. God is constantly letting you make your bad decisions and then helping you to redeem those things and make them into something that can be useful for yourself and for other people in your life. And and he's patient and gentle in the process. The angel in that vignette wasn't trying to hurt the ghost any more than he had to. There was just going to be an inevitable moment of suffering while the ghost finally gave up something that he'd always held so dear. But in the but on the other side of it was every good thing waiting for him. So uh, thanks for bringing that one up, Brian. And so okay. So by the way, folks, there's a uh, you know, dear listeners, there are. I, I, I haven't counted, but I think there's, you know, 10, 12 vignettes. All of them have incredible nuggets and convictions and life lessons. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, uh, you know, we're, we're more than an hour and a half in here. So what I want to do, uh, we've given you a pretty good, not a detailed review of the book. But, and, and if we're giving a review, go buy this book and read it. It's a fantastic book. I love this book. I think any Christian who you know has any intellectual or cerebral bent and likes this kind of thing can get a lot out of uh, the book The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. It's not a hard read. Um, it's a and it's a worthwhile read. And as and it's one of the few books that I come back to over and over. So if you can't tell, it, there's a lot here. Um, and and we have not done it full justice by any means, you know, to, to do it full justice, you'd have to listen to the book, discuss it with friends, listen to it, discuss it with friends, listen to it, discuss it with friends. Maybe that would do it justice. Um, but what I want to do is give both Dan and Brian a chance to share any final thoughts. And I'm sure I'll have a few to share as well of uh, just general impressions, lessons learned, favorite moments, uh, other, you know, other observations, um, scriptures or anything like that, that, uh, could be helpful and then we'll uh then we'll wind this episode down so dan i'm going to hand it to you for um your uh final thoughts or uh or general comments on the book now that we've kind of let people into what the great divorce by c.s lewis is all about yeah if if you've read this book yeah i'm sure you've been sitting here thinking why didn't they cover this vignette or this vignette because they are all uh, amazing and and have deep insights in them. Uh, one one last thing to get into is uh, is the size of hell, and this is kind of a like a spoiler alert because this is a a really cool part of the book. But it's been out for seventy five years, so if you haven't read it yet, you know you could just read it. Um, but you know it, it's finally explained at the end that. You know they're they're trying to figure out why you know why can't um, these heavenly beings go down into hell and just bring people back and talk to them about it, and they explained that they can't fit in hell because hell is actually tiny, and so you realize that this bus that they were on, uh, you know at, at first hell sounds huge and vast because all these people just keep on moving further and further away from everybody because they don't want to be around all these other people in hell. And then you realize that hell is actually so minuscule that it's it's smaller than a single atom. And all this evil that seems so huge and vast is so 
tiny compared to the vastness of, of heaven and the good and the light and what God has for us. And this is another one of those themes that keeps coming up, I think, in this podcast is you know, that God is so much bigger than we give him credit for, so much bigger than we can even begin to comprehend, that his love for us is so much more vast than we could ever hope to even get a glimpse of. And and so that, this kind of does a really cool way of painting that picture of that, you know, all these people and all their lives and all their troubles and all their concerns and all their pride, all added together still exists in this tiny minuscule space that is completely insignificant in the in the realm of heaven and what that is. So uh, I'll, I'll leave it with that as the final thought that, you know, that Jesus, what he's done for us is, is really what it comes down to. And that is going to so completely triumph over everything else. Um, and, and we can't even imagine now how that's going to happen, but uh, it, it's a more complete victory than, than we'll ever understand. Great yeah, thoughts, Dan. That's a great thought. <clears throat> Go for it, Brian. Okay, so another book that's another C.S. Lewis book that does similar kinds of things to to a person when they're reading it is Screwtape Letters. Hmm. In a way, I look at C.S. Lewis as a kind of a logical psychologist because what he does is he brings out these situations and he makes you evaluate it and actually walk through the details of what you're thinking about. So Joel earlier in the, in this episode mentioned the EMT person or the, the emergency services person that said, you know, I've seen all these horrible things. And, you know, if there's a, a God who's all loving that allows these things then I want nothing to do with it. And, but if you actually start to go down the path of, what does it mean if God didn't allow those things? What is it that he's removing from humanity so that those things don't happen? And those things that he's removing is free will, the ability for people to make choices. Because in every horrible situation, it always, in general, came from a series of decisions that were made to get into that situation. Now there's natural disasters and there's other things too, so I'm not trying to be flippant about it. But when you start to you really evaluate what it means to have your will be unable to make choices, now you have a big problem. And the book, The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis, it's not about how to deal with pain in your life. It is an examination of why pain must exist anytime you get two beings in the same space that have their own will. Because inevitably, they are going to come to a conflict and that results in pain. And so that whole book is about why pain has to exist and why wishing that pain would go away is tantamount to saying, take away my choice and make me into a robot so that I will never do anything bad to another person. And a lot of these vignettes deal with different areas of our own psyche and our own choices that we make, our own ways that we think about ourselves, the ways that we think about God. And it's, I believe it's extremely valuable 
to to have my own mind woken up to say, oh, I was thinking about that in a certain way. It turns out that way was really wrong. And all it does is it's like when I'm driving down the road and somebody cuts me off and I yell and scream at them. I know none of my dear listeners would ever do that, but I've I've done that. And what am I really saying? I'm saying to the universe, what's going on with me right now is more important than whatever's going on with them. I don't care what's going on with them. They interrupted me and they interrupted my will. Therefore, they're bad. And I'm going to say mean things about them. And it's going to ruin my whole day. And I'm going to fixate on the fact that this happened to me and it ruined my day. Or someone bumps into me and dumps coffee all over my laptop. It's, it's, how do you, how do you deal with those in a way that says, oh, I actually am a follower of Christ and I'm supposed to have compassion for people and living that out on a daily basis. This book provides a lot of punches in the face when you examine your own heart, your own mind, and your own decision-making versus what you think the world should be like, you know, when you're just kind of being selfish. So that's my final thought on this. Hmm. Great point. And for those listeners who, uh, I want to point out, you know, we joke a little bit about Calvinism and C.S. Lewis is not a Calvinist and he's not, but that doesn't mean that he or we ignore the portions of scripture from which Calvinists or Reformed theology spring. And in fact, as he gets the, the, the very final part of this book, he revisits that idea and he doesn't reject it. But also throughout the entire book, the whole thing is predicated on will and choices and the value of the will and choices. And I won't ruin it because the, the very final scene, the very final chapter is a, is, is a really neat climax of the story. But I, I'll just say he gives a nod to the idea that there's a chessboard with pieces being moved around. And, but it zooms out to this, you know, you know, very, very macro level. And then he goes, wait, is everything I saw false? And the teacher says, no, it's not false at all. He goes, well, then how can it be true and this other thing be true? And the teacher essentially says, like, you're asking too much from, you're trying to understand too much from what this is, what this is offering to you. Yeah. And that's, I think, just to make sure people don't get the wrong idea, you know, uh, a true Armenian would say that God even suspends his sovereignty in order to give people free will. And that's not what we're saying. No, no, not, not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is God is sovereign. God can do whatever God wants to do. And, but the mystery, and this is where there is true mystery. The mystery is God can move and shape events and still give us the ability to make choices that are actual choices and not fake choices. Meaning and that are- you, you choose something, but you didn't really choose it because God made you choose it a certain way. That's not what the scripture tells us. The scripture gives us this big picture that we cannot understand, but he is sovereignty is real. And so are we as image bearers of God in having actual choices that are significant and meaningful and are uncoerced, I guess is what I want to say. I don't know how that works and nobody knows how that works except God himself, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, so. I mean, uh, so when we say the scripture says this or that, what what we're uh, what what we're leaning towards here is 
The scripture does not assign personal responsibility for our choices to God, but it assigns personal responsibility for our choices to us. But it does also assign responsibility for outcomes of those choices to God. And so it, it's this interlayered thing where the relationship is necessary and God's sovereignty is never compromised. But in order for the relationship to be a love-based relationship and in order for you know love to be love and, and choice to be choice, then we bear personal responsibility for our choices and he's not manipulating our choices. You do not see manip... And, and the great divorce is a really good picture of that. The ghosts are not being manipulated into choosing heaven. They're being urged into choosing heaven, but they are able to make the choice. And that that last vignette we discussed where the angel says, I can't do this unless you ask me to. And I, I one of the points I want to make and partly because before this recording, you know, we were talking about spiritual warfare is that cuts both ways. That's um, the reality of our will in the spirit world. And when I say spirit world, keep in mind, you have a spirit as well. We are part of the spirit world. We just are, we're native to it, but we have a hard time seeing it. Our will is very, very important for, for Christ to, the way he offers salvation is he offers it as a gift. And a gift requires a willing recipient. It, and, and I had this, you know, we're coming up on, on Christmas here, and I've had this with, a, we just celebrated a birthday. Brian just had a birthday, by the way, but also my, my young son had a birthday. And there was a, a scenario where uh, we, we had to discuss gifts. And when somebody offers you a gift, how do you accept that gift? And, and how you accept the gift from somebody says a whole lot about what you believe about the offerer and what, not just about the gift, but if, if you hate the person offering the gift, you don't want to accept any gift from them. So God can offer you every good thing, but if you hate God, then you're not going to accept it. And there's a lot of that in this book. So, the, and, and that's a willful transaction that is how salvation is portrayed in scripture as a gift, which is, you know, willfully offered and either willfully rejected or willfully received. Um, and meanwhile, you have this God who is ultimately sovereign and ultimately uh, uh, knowing of what's going on and choosing to choosing how he's going to use people. And, and I would go so far as to say making that choice based on how he knows they're going to make their choices. And does he urge us along the way? Well, absolutely. You see that all over the, uh, all over the old Testament and even in the new Testament, you know, Jesus, you know, says I, I have Jerusalem. I've longed to, to, uh, to gather you, but you wouldn't have me. So God honors our choices. And similarly, in the spiritual sense, then on the negative side, our choices are also honored. If you willfully accept something negative from a negative spiritual force, and, and here, here's the woo-woo portion of this episode, then that will also be honored. So when we get into some future and upcoming episodes that, uh, that, I, I, you know, that, that we are, God willing, you know, planning to record or offer, then keep that in mind, that the choices and the permissions that you offer really impact 
the spiritual world and what the and what and what the spiritual world is able to do with your will. So I'll stop there. Uh, there's going to be more on that later. We're uh, just around two hours in. Solid episode. I'm very grateful to uh, Dan and to Brian for uh, being here and recording this episode. We really, really hope that you all have enjoyed this discussion of C.S. Lewis, the works of C.S. Lewis, and particularly this wonderful little work called The Great Divorce. So we love you guys. We appreciate you. Thank you for listening and hanging in here with us. Thank you for your feedback. I'll say it one more time. Uh, do share. If if you've benefited from this and people you know have benefited from this, then share it with people who aren't familiar, not because we're trying to become something great in this space. We're not. We just really, really want to make sure that this hard work we're doing is reaching people and edifying the church and doing good things in the church or for people who should be in the church but uh, haven't yet understood how to make that decision. If you are in that bucket, by the way, then this episode is a really good one for you to consider. If you've never made a choice for Christ, if you've never chosen to accept Christ, then you know this framework of the Great Divorce book is a really good way to, uh, to think about that, to say, have I, am I willing to set myself aside and accept Jesus Christ as my, you know, you hear this Christianese term, you know, my, my Lord and my Savior, but what does that mean? It means, am I willing to say, I want what he has for me more than I want what I have for me? And we could spend a lot of time discussing what that means. But if you're feeling that urging in your spirit, then the one thing I can guarantee is that if you have that conversation with him, he will meet you where you are in that conversation. If you say, Lord Jesus, if you're out there, I'm feeling this and this and this about what, what you have for me versus what I have for me. And then you listen, you're going to get something from him. And if you're honest about it, and willing to set self aside, which is so much of what C.S. Lewis is talking about here, then what you're going to find is he's saying, oh, I have so much more for you. I have so much more for you than you can ask or imagine. And I do not condemn you. And I welcome you. And by the way, I already paid for all that other garbage. And I already see you as so much more than you've ever imagined. So have that conversation. And if you're not sure how to have it or you get stuck at any point, you can reach out to us at mysterybibleon at gmail.com. Uh, of course, we have the uh, the Telegram thread that many of you are on, and we want to make sure that everything we do is pointing towards the glory of Jesus Christ and the incredible end game within which I think many of us are participating. So we love you guys. Thank you for being here, and we look forward to the next episode.